Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, picking up at verse 29. Actually, let's go back to 27. John 12, 27. This is the word of the Lord. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. While you have the light, so that darkness will not over walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself, hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we are made of dust and weak and miserable and cramped with indwelling sin. And so we really need the Spirit to work in us, to give us understanding of your Word. We really need the illumination that he brings, that enlightening, that light within us that he brings to us to understand the words of your Son and the words recorded for us here. And so, Father, we pray that he would do that work, that he would be illumining our hearts and minds, and that we would be meditating on your truth. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So last time, you'll remember, we looked through the soul trouble of Jesus and his quick turning back to the task at hand, right? My soul is troubled, yet I came for this purpose. Jesus exercised his faith when pressed down with soul trouble and stayed on the mission to glorify his Father in heaven. And now we pick up 
from the response of the father to the faith of his son. After Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, which is essentially the same thing as him as we have him recorded elsewhere saying, not will, my will, but your will be done. You know, glorify your name. Let's stay on mission. Right after he says that, an audible voice, that of God the Father Almighty, comes out of heaven and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the fa- Jesus addresses the Father, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name. Not at any time have any of us heard God speak audibly. None of us. Not any of us have heard God speak with the voice of a man from the skies out of heaven. The Israelites did in the wilderness at Sinai, and they didn't really like it. Like, that's, that's quite good. We, uh, we'll listen to Moses, not you. Three times when Jesus was incarnate, the voice of the Father was heard audibly at his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, and then at the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, And here, right before his crucifixion in John chapter 12. Those are the three times. At the outset of his ministry, at the transfiguration, at the height of his ministry, and then right before he dies. The the Father speaks audibly from heaven. John doesn't mention the first two. Those are in the synoptic gospels. John mentions this one, and this one doesn't appear in the others. And so... um, Thankfully, we have four Gospels. It's a miracle, right? This is a miracle that happens before them. And it it simply cannot be explained, the voice of God speaking from heaven. It can't be explained, but it has to be believed. This is an article of our faith. God spoke from heaven. We believe that he spoke. Right? And God, the creator of all things, spoke with the voice of a man, and people heard it. It was done undoubtedly like the first two instances at the outset of Christ's ministry and in the midst of Christ's ministry. And it was done to show Jesus to us That God was with him to show to Jesus and to us that God was with him. Right? It was a testimony that the Almighty God was with him. Ryle says, Our Lord was never left alone. His Father was always with him, though men knew it not. How could it be otherwise? So far as concerned his divine nature, he and the Father were one. They were one, but also two distinct persons, one speaking to the other, one dying and the other carrying out his plan. Now, what does the Father mean when he says that he has glorified his name and will glorify his name again? There are two ways we could understand it. It could have reference to the works of his Son, 
right? I've glorified my name, will glorify it in what you're doing, in what the Son is doing, all of which have been to the Father's glory, his incarnation, right? His miracles, his ministry, his preaching, his, his living, and then ultimately his dying, all to the glory of God, right? And all through that, the Father is glorifying himself. Or it could have reference to all of the Father's works from the beginning of creation, All he has done has been to bring glory to his name. All of his creating work was so that he would have those who would praise his name and glorify his name. From creation through the time of Moses and the kings of Israel, through the time of the tabernacle, through the time of the temple and the kings, and and now in the ending of all the types and figures, the shadows, the sacrifices by the death and resurrection of his only begotten son, God is glorifying himself. Both fit. It could be just about Jesus. It could be just the work he's doing. It could be just about everything that God has ever done. And both fit. Both point to the fact that the end of all things is not you. The end of all things is God. The end of all things is not merely your comfort and satisfaction, but the very glory of the glorious one. That is the meaning of all things. God will have glory. That's it. Now, if you're swept up in his glory, it will be amazing. It will be glorious. But that is, you are in being swept in that a a fringe side of God's work and the end of God's work. Right, the glory of God. That the glory of God is the freight train that runs and will run through all of history, unstoppably. That's the Christian hope. That is the trajectory of all things. God's glory. The throne of God will be on the redeemed earth, and all the glory of the nations will be given. Will, will come into His kingdom, and will be given to Him properly. And without sin distracting us, right? Praise will be given to him without any distraction. um, Because our elder brother will have dealt with all of it. The crowd is rightly perplexed by hearing the voice of God from heaven. You imagine? Some thought it had thundered. Some thought it was the voice of an angel, and the, the crowds, when they hear it, are, begin chattering about it, like, what was that? I mean, I don't see any speakers. It's a joke. Um, they are chattering about it They're, because they want to understand, and then Jesus says this, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. In other words, The father spoke not to console the son even. Not to console the son, but but he spoke to witness to all those souls there, telling them to turn their eyes, their thoughts, and their hearts to the one who came to save them from their sins. The father was telling those souls to pay attention to what would happen in the next few days. He speaks of the glory that is coming, the agony of his son. Right? The darkening of the skies, the earthquakes, the death, the very death of his son. And then, and then the most stupendous thing of all, the resurrection of that son from the dead. 
He's like, wait for this glory. It's almost as if God is just saying, get ready. Brace yourselves for what's coming. It is now time for the head of the serpent to be crushed. To be crushed by the seed of the Son. Do you know the gospel is right there at the beginning of your Bibles? Do you know it's right there at the outset? In Genesis chapter 3, we read this when God is cursing the serpent. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your seed and her seed, her seed being Messiah, he shall bruise you on the head, but you just get to bruise him on the heel. Right? It doesn't say it in so many words, but that's really the meaning. He gets the head wound, you get bruised on the heel. Different wound and magnitude. And so that prophecy from thousands of years before is days away from being fulfilled, right? In the days ahead, the days ahead, the serpent thought he had the upper hand now. He loves to see the Son of God in trouble. He thought he had the upper hand. And, and he delighted to see the Son of Man hanging from a Roman cross. But it was through that method that God would fulfill the age old promise to crush the serpent's head. It's glorious. This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, now judgment is upon the world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Head crushing. Jesus would be filling his condemnation of the devil announced so many thousands of years prior, and not just a condemnation of the devil, but a denouncement Think of this, not just a condemnation of the devil, but a denouncement of the, all the consequences of the devil's rule over the world. Sin and destruction and waywardness and revolt against God. Done. Ryle gives his interpretation of this verse, and it's helpful. He says that Jesus is saying something along these lines. He says, Now has arrived the season when a sentence of condemnation shall be passed by my death on the whole order of things which has prevailed in the world since the creation. The world shall no longer be let alone and left to the devil and the powers of darkness. I'm about to spoil them of their dominion by my redeeming work and to condemn and set aside the dark, godless order of things which has so long prevailed on the earth. It has long been winked at and tolerated by my Father. The time has come when it will be tolerated no longer. This very week, by my crucifixion, the religious systems of the world will receive a sentence of condemnation. The old order of things done. Remember back in the ninth chapter of John, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, 
so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Jesus came into this world to condemn the old ways, the blind ways, the the ways that so delighted the evil one, the prince of the power of the air. And those are the ways of sin, the ways of death. Brothers and sisters, we often celebrate those ways, those old ways. We glorify violence and lust when we consume them in our entertainments. It's just astonishing how you can't get away from murder in anything that you would set your mind to. We get kinky in our desires, twisted. We imitate the evil one in his questioning of the goodness of God when, when something goes according to rules we think are unfair. The old man seems to dominate us at times, doesn't it? And that old man is a lover of the ways of death and evil. It is marked by hostility to God, all very pleasing to the evil one. Right? Jesus came to crush the serpent's head, to condemn the world and her ways, and to rescue those who were perishing. Jesus came to set us free from that bondage. Bondage to evil. And so we pray with faith that the way that he taught us to pray, right? Deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And... He's done so. He's done so. He did that on the cross. We don't consider this much, right? He has come into this world. Jesus came into this world to condemn this world and its ways and its systems, its conspiracy against God's glory. all of which were satanic, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, right? We don't consider this much. How much the disorder of this world prior to Christ's crucifixion was due to the forces of Satan. We simply have a more materialistic view of the world and don't really want to attribute any disorder, you know, we learn of as due to the work of the evil one or evil spirits or evil. But Christ's crucifixion was a casting out of the ruler of this world, this evil spirit. The the cross of Christ changed things, right? It changed the order of the world. Oh, the evil one's works will not be done ultimately until Christ returns, Satan has been defeated. He has not been vanquished. God still uses him for his own means. It is guaranteed by Christ's work that the evil one will entirely be cast out. And the darkness that was in the world will have been washed away by the light of Jesus Christ. His glory is seen around the world in conversions and in revivals and in the ongoing ministry of the church. Now think about that. 
the church. The church is where we see that everything has changed. The church. Dumpy little church. The glory of God on earth. Right? It's the church where we see this glory. Right? Our, our minds go to a thousand other things. We want to see mass conversions. We want to see revival. And we want to see just like these extraordinary miracles happen. And we just look past God's household on earth, the church. Constituted in a way after the crucifixion of Christ. His glory is seen around the world in the ongoing ministry of the church. The light has shined and is shining in this world. Don't take that for granted. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. We learn from this, as verse 33 says, that he would die by being lifted up from the earth. That he would die being lifted up on a cross, right? To Nicodemus, he had already said this back in John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Same words here. He's telling people, I'm going to be crucified. And that form of death and that particular death of Jesus would have a powerful effect on the whole earth, all the nations and peoples of the earth. By that death, his by that death and by his conquering death, Jesus would draw all men to himself. The ruler of the world, the evil one, was cast out and the kingdom of Christ had come. So Satan's reign is over and Christ's reign has begun and will have no end. All history will come to its appointed end. And now listen to this. I've been saying this the last two sun- Sundays I preach, right? It's all for God's glory. It's the end of everything. And here it is in 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after, those, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father whom he, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I mean, the, the, the mind begins to boggle in a verse like that. Do you hear what it's saying? When all this work is done, when Christ is returned, when, when the kingdom is fulfilled, at that point, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to his Father and 
be subject to the Father. They're equal. They're one. Divine simplicity. Right? They're, they're one. And yet there it says that in eternity, there's some sort of subjection voluntarily on the part of the Son of God. There's some sort of order even within the Trinity after this. And do you see how now, how when I say that, that your purpose and Jesus' purpose was the glory of the Father, where it's like, whoa, okay, that is, that is everything. There is nothing else. There is nothing else that can, can even come close to the importance of all of history heading towards something. It's the glory of the Father. That's why everything exists. That's why anything happens in this world. That's why Jesus came. That's why he rose from the dead. That's why he perfected his people. That's why he's going to hand over the kingdom and submit himself to the Father because the Father will have all the glory. All of it. And everything will be praising the glory of the Father. Oh, it'll be comfortable. Oh, all your hurts will be gone. Yada, yada. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yada, yada. But, the, but God will be glorified eternally. That is first. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Oh man, Jesus doesn't even get to claim that praise for himself. And that's already the order of the world, and that is yet not yet the order of this world. Right? That is the order, and it's not yet the order. There is a consummation coming. But the work that Jesus did days from this passage, days from this time, changed everything. In these last days now, we, you and I, announce that Jesus the Lord is coming again and then all will be remade, redeemed, consummated, made new in an eternal kingdom. So, relax. Just chill out. Just... Just don't be so upset. That's going on right now. That's happening. That's the end of everything. That's why you're experiencing everything you're experiencing in this life, that God might be glorified. So just, would you please just relax? God has this. He, Christ reigns. He is purifying his bride that he will present to his father. He is bringing about the appointed end of all things in his father's glory. Amen. Now take a look at the next few verses. It's very interesting to me. The crowd speaks. And, you know, the crowd, they often go off the rails in what they're saying. They're kind of like, eh. Kind of like we would, you know, showing their ignorance. Crowd speaks, tells Jesus what they're thinking. We've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up, that he must be crucified? They get it, right? Who is the Son of Man? 
And so they get what he's saying about being lifted up, being um, the way he was about to die, right? They hear it as a Roman cross. But that doesn't make sense to them because, look, if this dude is the Messiah, he's going to stay forever. He's sticking around, right? Why this talk of death? They believe that the law taught that Christ was going to come and do what? Well, they certainly didn't believe that Christ was going to come and suffer and die. Even though it's so present in Scripture. Right? They believed it taught that he would come and live and reign and certainly not suffer. Right? They believed that he would make Israel great again. That was their hope. Mega. Certainly the Old Testament prophecies speak of an eternal kingdom. There's no denying that, right? Um, the, the Old Testament prophecies speak of an eternal kingdom having no end. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Um, but they missed the prophecies like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 69. That talk about Jesus being a propitiation a sacrifice, a lamb to be slaughtered. One who would lay down his life for the sheep. Of course, Jesus, all through his ministry, how many times have we seen it in the Gospel of John, frequently talks about the fact that he's three days, die, three days, rise again. You know, and, and every time it's said, it says the apostles didn't get it. Um, they seemed to never get it. The Jews heard it and had begun to wonder how this saying, you know, this could reconcile with their understanding of the reign of the Messiah as a political rule over their specific nation. They sensed the contradiction between what Jesus said and the theology that they had been taught by their scribes and Pharisees from the law and prophets. They believed the Messiah would come and remain forever on this earth as a political ruler. And that he would then from Israel go on and conquer the lands surrounding Israel. And he would go on and conquer the lands past that. And eventually go on and conquer all the kingdoms of the earth. No suffering. No death. No resurrection. Just rule. Just reign. Just commander-in-chiefing. It's a terrible error, isn't it? It's a terribly wicked error. It's downright heretical and shows they're bent toward things political. Right? Remember in John 6, the people had almost forced Jesus to become king. You remember that? I like to say to become their president just because then it makes us think more properly about it. People come, it says, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. Do you see how satanic they were being in that verse? Satanic. Jesus was tempted by the devil, you remember? He was tempted by the devil in the desert, and the devil offered Jesus what? 
kingdoms of the world. That's what the devil offered him. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And so Jesus was intent on fulfilling his father's will, not in gobbling up the nations of this world, right? Which, dear brothers and sisters, were and are all his now and always have been. Satan was just offering him the things he already owned. So the crowds are feeling the dissonance, though, between what Jesus is saying about dying and their erroneous view that the Messiah would come and rule over the nation Israel in the exact same fashion as King David did. It's so incredibly short-sighted and misguided. They don't understand the kingdom, the kind of kingdom over which Jesus reigns which is to say they don't understand that it is a spiritual kingdom over which he reigns, one not of this world. Now, how does Jesus respond to their confusion about who he was and what he was going to do, which is to die? Note the analogy he makes. He speaks of the light of day and the darkness that comes at night. It's a very simple analogy. It's a very simple thing he's saying here. He says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. In other words, the end of the day is coming. I'm going to die, it's dusk, and it's time for you to find lodging for the night because travel at night is difficult and very dangerous, can't do it, right? So, but, but me, just, just like that analogy, I'm, there's not much time here. And that description of the ending of the day, he then uses as an analogy for faith, just like the ending of the day brings impossibility to travel so to the ending of your days, your days will bring an ending, will bring an impossibility of faith. While you have the light, while there is still time in the day, believe in the light. In other words, not only am I not going to be around long, but the day is turning to night, and while it is still day or today, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day by day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So that day in Jerusalem, Jesus is telling those who heard his father's voice that they had gotten him wrong, 
They should not expect him to relieve their physical suffering as a nation, but that each of them should put their faith in him for the salvation of their souls. He's pointing them toward himself as Savior and denying their presumption that he would be their earthly king. It's like he's saying, you know what? Be sons of light and not merely sons of the revolution against Rome. Sons of light. Sons of my kingdom. A kingdom of light. Not sons of the revolution. And remember, these are the last words Jesus spoke publicly. These are the final words that he spoke publicly amongst crowds. The last sermon he gave was about light. He was the light that reveals to us the Father. He is the light that dispels all darkness, the darkness of this world, the darkness of your own heart. Through faith in that light, you yourselves will show Christ's light to the world. There's a kingdom that is above all the kingdoms of this earth, and it's a kingdom of light. It's an everlasting kingdom in which there is no need of the sun because Christ will be the light there. And what more proof do we need of Jesus refocusing their mind on his redemptive task to save their souls while rejecting their worldly aspirations to see them as some political power than the fact that he goes away and hides himself from them? Oh, man. It's a minor detail in the text, but it is significant. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Oh, man. Just days before his crucifixion, at the very end of his public ministry, he's got, you know, the Passover feast coming with his, his apostles, and, and he says, even at that point, he's not like, man, i got to see as many people as I can. It's like they try to make him king, and he's like, no. I'm getting away from this people. They are wicked. I will not follow their will, and they have misunderstood me. None of the commentaries I read made much of the fact that Jesus hid himself. But it seems to me it parallels the same, the, the previous escape Jesus made from the aspirational nationalists when they desired to make him king. He's like, slink, slips out. He won't have it. And so what application do I make from this? Well, here's one. Here's an application from this text. Many people seek Jesus because they desire temporal blessings. Right? Is that an application we can make out of this? They want to dominate the Romans, right? They want temporal blessings. They want now to have their party, right? They want it now. So they want temporal blessings. The prosperity gospel certainly does that. That's what they offer. Reconstructionist postmillennialism does a very similar thing. 
They both have their eyes set upon the increase of temporal blessings. And I would say it is our natural bent, all of our natural bent to desire those kinds of blessings. Two, we want our comfort in this life. We want our comfort now. We want freedom from cosmic bummers here and now. And God has never promised any one of you any freedom from those cosmic bummers. This side of glory. This side of glory. But dear brothers and sisters, there are true and lasting blessings in Christ which have to do with your first and most pressing problem, which is the certificate of debt that has accumulated and built up because of your sins. Jesus came that you might be free from the tyranny of your sins. And he did not promise you flowery beds of ease and physical comfort before you die. He was acquainted with suffering and said that all those who follow with him would follow the same path. You may go through life filled with grief. But as a son of light, as a son of light, you will do so with joy here and joy fixed and full hereafter. You may have a life filled with grief and have joy in it. And certainly it will be fixed and full hereafter. Your sins, after all, have been forgiven in Christ. The Father loves you. The spiritual blessings of faith in Christ are a rich and vast treasure. Be content with that. Be content with that. Why in the world would we not be content with that? It's, I mean... We are so thick, thick. Be content with that, though he may prepare you for your spiritual inheritance with much suffering. I haven't known anybody in this life who hasn't suffered. And then finally, let me say this. Notice Jesus' words here. Again, remember, this is the last thing he stated publicly. For a little while, while longer, the light is among you. For a little while longer, the light is among you, he says to those who were gathered there that day. You do not know when you will no longer be able to turn to the light, to walk in the light. For a little while longer, you may turn to the light. For a little while longer is the time that you have to turn to Christ. After you die, there is no longer any possibility of turning to Christ instantly. Upon your death, you will stand before him and face judgment. So do not linger. You don't know what today will bring to you, what dangers you face, how many breaths you will be able to draw into your chest. But come to Christ now and walk in his light and be a son of the light before it is too late. Come to Christ. Walk in his light. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible work of Jesus Christ, your Son. Facing agony like no one has ever faced, and he did so with perfect faith. He did so having your glory in mind. Father, forgive us for being focused on our own glory so often. Forgive us for wanting glory from other people rather than having people look upon us and seeing your glory. Working so that we might be seen, praying so that we may be seen, you know, wanting credit for all of our works. And not even remembering that it is you who watches those works and determines whether they've been done in faith or not. And so I pray that we would remember your gaze and why it is that we obey your word and pursue faithfulness. Lord, help us in this. Help us to shake loose from our self-centeredness. And Father, I pray, I pray for our body. I pray that you would grow us in the knowledge of you. I pray that we would love your word, that we would hang on it and study it and mull it over and read it as if it's inspired. Father, I pray that you would mature us, each one of us would mature, and more and more the the temptations of the evil one and the world and the flesh would, would be resisted by us as we look for the way of escape that you provide. But Father, most of all, we glorify your Son. We glorify him for his work. We glorify that he was the one who went into the trenches, who, who um, obeyed every one of your commands, who died by hanging on that tree. And we now are sons of light by faith. Not even by our works, not especially by our works, but simply by faith. And so, Lord, we thank you for that stupendous gift. Father, fill our hearts with thankfulness. Fill our hearts with, uh, fill our mouths with thanksgiving. I pray that this week, those we work with, those in our homes, our siblings, our brothers and sisters, our cousins, everybody around us, strangers, would hear us simply giving thanks to you. And that you... Father, would receive all the glory. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.